Hey, we are continuing our uh, series, Following Jesus, Discovering the Extraordinary Within the Ordinary, and we are following along with the disciples through the Gospels, where we see ordinary people living ordinary lives, but when they follow Jesus, the extraordinary happened. And that can be true for us as well, because for the last 2,000 years, God has been using ordinary people just like us. And when we follow Jesus, the ordinary can become extraordinary. This morning, as I said earlier, is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week uh, for us. But for the passage this morning, um, I want to give a little background on what was happening in the passage. In the passage, it was the week, it's the beginning of the week, leading up to the Jewish feast of Passover. Passover was one of the three major festivals that the Jewish people uh, would celebrate and continue to celebrate uh, to this day. And um, in Jesus's time, there would literally be hundreds of thousands of people journeying to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. It was a chaotic time. Think of trying to travel at Christmas time. That's sort of what this would have felt like, except for it might have even been uh, worse. Our scripture reader for this morning is Chris Voss, and so Chris, if you can make your way on up to the podium, and I'm going to ask as he does so, if you're able to please stand and face the center of the room. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so Chris, whenever you are ready, please read from John chapter 12. The next day... The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. With a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Chris, thank you very much. You may be seated. Key word for this morning is praise. We talk about praising Jesus often in places like this. Uh, we come to worship him every week. 
Uh, in the passage, Jesus is being praised as he enters Jerusalem, and so we're going to look at uh, some of the reasons that Jesus is praised in this passage, but I also want us to ask ourselves, if like the disciples in this passage, are we missing something about who we worship or why we worship Jesus? You see, the people sung his praises because Jesus' entry into Jerusalem appeared, appeared to be a triumph. Now, if you have a Bible that does little Bible headings for different passages of Scripture, many Bible headings and, and throughout church history, we've called this the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. And um, what's kind of interesting about that is the Bible never uses language like this to describe this event. And so if the Bible never uses language to describe, like triumphal entry to describe this event, it kind of leads us to the question, why, why do we call this the triumphal entry? Why is this entry triumphal? Which, of course, leads to another question, what does a triumph look like, or what does a victory look like, or what does success look like? And if you were to Google different quotes on success, you would find a plethora, a plethora of quotes about success. Uh, just a couple examples. Uh, one quote on success is, success is getting what you want. Another quote is, success is liking yourself, what you do, and liking how you do it. Another quote is, success is not about how much money you make, but how much difference you make in other people. And lastly, a quote is, success is when your signature transforms into an autograph. Now, we call this the triumphal entry because it looks like a triumphal entry. It meets our standards for success. Again, we have these almost unconscious standards uh, for success. We don't even think about them. They just are. It's what we use to determine whether or not someone or ourselves is successful. Uh, this is not an exhaustive list of criteria, but just a couple. Um, one is prosperity. The whole idea of more is better. Who has the most? Again, Jesus has the most people, the most people following him in this passage. Verse 12, it describes the great crowd. Or verse 17, where it says, the crowd that was with him. Or verse 18, many people went out to meet him. Verses 20 and 21, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they said, we would like to see Jesus. And again, and the Greeks here are probably what was called God-fearers, those who are not Jewish but were interested in the Jewish faith. And so you even had non-Jews interested in this Jewish rabbi. Again, the most people, that looks like success. Another standard is power, where we ask the question, what can you do? And verse 17 says, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. Jesus could raise people from the dead, not to mention all the other miracles he could and did perform. And with that kind of power, well, that's, that's success. Or popularity, where we ask the question, do others like you? Verse 13 says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. 
Now, when the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed, and king at you or to you, well, that means your approval polls are doing pretty good. That's success. Another criteria is the ability to push back the competition, where we ask the question, are you outperforming your rivals? Verse 19 says, So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See, those who had been challenging Jesus time and time again, they were confounded. Everything they had tried hadn't slowed Jesus down. So Jesus had all of this going for him. Success was his for the taking. And in the midst of all that praise, the disciples were not aware of what God was doing through Jesus. They were not aware. Which is amazing because Jesus told them over and over that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And for me, it's critical to highlight this shortcoming of the disciples where it says in verse 16, At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. You see, they should have understood, but they didn't get it. But even with their inability to understand, God still used them to do extraordinary things through them. And that's critical for us to remember because there's a really good chance, a really good chance that we are not aware of what God is doing around us. How often do you think that we miss what God is doing in our very own lives? How often do we miss that? And yet, even though we miss it and we're not aware, God can still use us to do the extraordinary. So if we revisit our standards for success and remember what God said in Isaiah 55 where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, in the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, the dominant religion was the worship of Greco-Roman gods. Gods like Zeus and Poseidon, Hades, Apollo, Aphrodite, Artemis, Hera, Athena. Now, what's interesting about the Greco-Roman gods is that they struggled, if you are familiar with any of their stories, they struggled with things we struggle with. Jealousy, lust, dishonesty, betrayal. And their solutions were not that different from how we solve things because the most powerful God would win in their stories. And so the Greco-Roman gods were just like human beings. They were just bigger and stronger. Now our God is bigger and stronger, but he isn't just like us. 
What does God say about our standards of success? The ones that we don't even think twice about. Prosperity. When we ask, who has the most? Jesus asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Power. When we ask, what can you do? God says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Or popularity, when we ask, who likes you? God says, well, my people come to you, as they usually do, and they sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. I love that. You are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. If I were to paraphrase that into modern terms, I would say, God saying, you're nothing more than a rock star. That's all you are, is a rock star. That's it. Push back the competition. When we ask, are you outperforming your rivals? Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God is not like us. And one way that he is not like us is for God, success is not so much about aptitude as it is about attitude. It's not so much about aptitude, it's more about attitude. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Now, I don't know what your recess experience was like when you were in elementary school, but for me in third grade, the playground sport was kickball. We, kick, we played kickball all the time at recess when I was in third grade. And one kid whose kickball team always won his name was Mike Tannell. Mike Tannell was the Bill Belichick of third grade kickball at our school. The guy was unbelievable. He always found a way to win. And in the classroom, we would talk about the games, you know, and Mike's team always won, and we'd always talk about that. And I don't know how exactly this came about. I don't know if one day he might have been bragging a little bit too much, but our teacher, Miss Ryan, challenged Mike to a game of kickball for the end of the year class picnic. And they decided that they would pick the teams and, and have a kickball game. And so the day before the end of the year class picnic, the, we picked the teams, sat down in class, and, and Mike got the first pick. And Mike picked Max Blumo. Max Blumo. Max Blumo, he was a soccer player with a cannon for a leg. He once kicked a ball so hard that it hit a parked car 100 yards away, and the car exploded. It was unbelievable. 
So Mike picked Max Blumo. And so then we wonder, well, who's Miss Ryan going to pick? Who's she going to pick? Is she going to pick Todd Callen? Todd Callen was easily the quickest guy in the class. This guy was fast. He was so fast, he could run down and catch rabbits eating vegetables out of his mother's garden. He was fast. Or maybe she would pick Kevin Nelson. Kevin Nelson could catch anything. He could catch it. He once caught an arrow in mid-flight with his toes. Blindfolded with one leg tied behind his back. It was unbelievable. So who was she going to pick? Todd, Kevin? Well, no, she didn't pick Todd or Kevin. She picked little Susie Orens. And there was audible laughter in the room. And not because Susie was a girl. You know, if you wanted to pick an athletic, we had plenty of athletic girls. You could have picked Val Frank or Jennifer Nowicki. But, and, and Susan was a sweet, sweet girl, but she just, you know, wasn't the most athletic. And that was Miss Ryan's first pick. So then, you know, Mike picks Todd. And uh, Miss Ryan, she picks Leanne Batsko, another sweet girl who wasn't the most athletic. And I'm thinking, Susie Ahrens, Leanne Batsko, does Miss Ryan understand she doesn't have to pick alphabetically? What are you doing? And so then Mike picks Kevin. So he's got Max, Todd, and Kevin. And Miss Ryan, she picks uh, Tom Davidson. And after the third pick, I realize what Miss Ryan is doing. She is purposely picking the not most athletic kids. She's doing it on purpose. And so I start strategizing because I don't want to be on her team. <laughs> so anytime it was Mike's turn to pick, I'm like sitting up in my chair. I'm kind of waving over here like this. Pick me, pick me. And then, you know, anytime it was Miss Ryan's turn to pick, I went into hibernation. I did one of these, one under my desk. I'll let you guess which team I ended up on. I was on Miss Ryan's team. So the next day was the game. And man, I was ready for a disaster. We were all ready for a disaster. And what was really kind of amazing is that our team was ahead for most of the game. It was unbelievable. And then Mike's team, they started falling apart. They were fighting and yelling and they were frustrated visibly. Now, they did win, okay? Mike's team did win. But they didn't win until they took their last ups to win. They didn't win until the end of the last inning. And so Miss Ryan's team lost the game, but winning, I realized in hindsight, wasn't the point. The point was anyone could coach with the best players. It took someone special to coach with the not-so-best players. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God loves to take the ordinary and do the extraordinary. And we don't have to understand how that works. The disciples surely didn't. We just have to believe that is how God works. We praise him because Jesus' path to victory was abandoning a self-centered life for a sacrificial one. Why take the path of sacrificial service when you can take the path of success? Those paths are not always mutually exclusive, I understand. Sometimes they are, though. And in the case of Jesus here, it was. Why should he take the path of sacrificial service when he could have taken the path of success.
Remember, Jesus had the crowds, had the power, popularity. His enemies were confounded. And then when people who weren't even Jewish came and wanted to see Jesus, he said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A kernel has to die, but then it produces many seeds. We are called to hate our life in this world to keep it for eternal life. And what Jesus is talking about there is self-denial and self-sacrifice. And, self, and both of those things involve giving up things that we want. And why do we not always get what we want? Why do we have to practice self-denial, self-sacrifice? Because it's good for us. Because there are some things in life that cannot be attained without self-denial and self-sacrifice. You know, what do the following things have in common? Courage, perseverance, integrity, love, peace, patience, loyalty, compassion, self-control. What they all have in common is they all require self-sacrifice. In order to be courageous or to persevere or to have integrity or love or peace or patience or loyalty or compassion or self-control, we have to sacrifice something. We cannot attain those things if all we ever do is pursue what we want. And so in order to experience what is eternally good, some things will have to die. Again, if you sacrifice something, by definition, it dies. That's what a sacrifice is. And so while not all of our wants will have to die, some of our wants will have to die. Something has to be denied. Something has to be sacrificed. And what's extraordinary about God is that God uses death to bring life. Out of sin and betrayal, God brings forgiveness. Out of brokenness and broken relationships, God brings reconciliation. And out of death, God brings resurrection. I mentioned earlier that Good Friday is this Friday at 7.30 p.m. is our service. And every year our Easter attendance where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus is about three times our Good Friday attendance where we celebrate the death of Jesus. And I want to encourage everyone once again that if you really want to experience everything Easter has to offer, come to the Good Friday service. Now, someone may ask, in fact, it's often we get asked this question um, this time of year, uh, why have a service that celebrates Jesus' death? You know, why celebrate Good Friday? Why even call it that? It's the death of Jesus. What is good about that? And let me just give you three reasons. These are not all the reasons, but these are three. 
One is we come to celebrate Good Friday because our sins were nailed to that cross with Jesus. And that's a good thing. Another reason is Jesus said, there is no greater love than to give up your life for your friends. And so on Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, he performed the greatest act of love in the history of the world. That's a good thing. And thirdly, you can't have a resurrection without a death. A death is required in order for there to be a resurrection. And be assured that if we die to some of our desires, that God will bring greater life to us and through us. Ordinary people giving up ordinary things and God will use that to do the extraordinary. And it's no surprise that Jesus would call us to sacrificial service because before Jesus became the king of kings, before he became the king of kings, he was the servant of servants. Philippians 2 says, Rather he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has powerfully conquered death. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we praise him for all those truths. But we also praise him because while lots of people want to use our best, only Jesus can redeem our worst. He became our servant. And he takes our hurts, our pains, our sins, and he redeems them. And only Jesus can do that. He does the extraordinary with our ordinary. You know, I appreciated what Pastor Brian had to say last week when he identified himself as just an other. He talked about the others and identified himself as an other. And I would echo that. Me too. I'm an other. Again, in high school, I underachieved academically. While I love sports, I've never been super athletic. And throughout my life, I've had great support. And I do right now, too. But I also know what it's like to not have a lot of people believe in you. I know what that's like, where you have to prove yourself over and over and over again. And it's not a lot of fun. And I love Jesus because he can redeem my worst and do the extraordinary with my ordinary. What has God redeemed in your life that he deserves your praise for? What sin or what hurt or pain, mistake, that he's redeemed and deserves your praise for that? Or, what in your life do you need God to redeem? What is that thing that's going on that you don't understand why it's going on? Or maybe you do and it's still really painful. 
And you just need to trust that God is going to redeem that, and you need him to. We're going to praise Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of our worship service worshiping Jesus. And I want us to remember that Jesus is a king who views success differently than us. He's a king who brings life from death. And we don't have to understand entirely how the king acts, but we just need to believe that he uses ordinary people like us to do the extraordinary. Please pray with me. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who can redeem and does redeem our brokenness, our hurts, our sins, our mistakes. And Lord, I would just ask that for anyone in this room that needs you to act in their life, to redeem something in their lives that you would. And Lord, I ask that you would show each of us what it is we need to sacrifice, what it is we need to deny in our lives so that you can do the extraordinary in and through us. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the faith and the encouragement that we would continue to move forward in our ordinary lives looking for how you act, believing that you will do extraordinary things through us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.